Hey everybody, welcome to OK Talks. I'm your host, Oliver Kendall. I'm a lifelong political nerd with a background in international relations and security policy who's worked for a number of democratic campaigns and liberal political organizations. I've also had the opportunity to live outside the U.S. for a number of years, which I think puts me in a good position to comment for my American audience on some events of note going on outside the country and to interpret for my, I'm pleased to say, growing non-American audience just what the hell's going on in American politics. It has been a real busy four years in politics in the U.S., and that's reached a fever pitch in the run-up to the most important election since 1860, in my opinion, which finally takes place in about a week. I've been focused, in a couple episodes of this show, on some scary, undemocratic moves by Republicans to exploit or exacerbate structural problems of American democracy to their political advantage. In this episode, I'm going to focus on the knock-on effects of one such attempted power grab having to do with the census, which got a major boost in the past couple weeks and didn't get a whole lot of attention given just how much is going on right now. It being hardly the sexiest part of the American politicalist system, I assume the majority of my international audience doesn't really know what I'm talking about, and that that actually probably applies to a good chunk of my American friends as well. Don't worry, this entire episode is not going to be a rundown of how the census works. But to understand what we're getting into today, we need some basic understanding of the function and purpose of the census, so I'm now going to give a brief overview of it. If you already know everything about this, feel free to skip ahead a couple minutes and save yourself the boredom. The census takes place every 10 years, and is the official government count of the population in the U.S. It's actually mandated in the U.S. Constitution and is critical to the functioning of American government. The resulting document, this once-in-a-decade count of the population, becomes a, a really important tool for the federal government. It's what gets used when considering infrastructure projects, implementation of large federal programs, distribution of federal funding, military planning, economic analysis, really everything that the government does domestically. When the U.S. was founded, sending some guys around to literally count the people made sense. But data science has in fact made a few advances since the 18th century. Also, literally going around and trying to count a population of around 330 million people is an unbelievably expensive undertaking and has a tendency to leave some people out, since some people are obviously harder to find than others. Different censuses have had different non-participation rates, but the last several have actually been pretty good, with non-participation rates, according to a study in Science Magazine, at or below 1%. But of course, during this census, the Trump administration is in charge, so naturally they've found multiple new and creative ways to screw up this basic government responsibility. One way they've done that is by Trump himself very publicly pushing to include a question about immigration status. Now, as I mentioned, most people aren't intimately familiar with what the census is and how it works. Even if the Census Bureau isn't in the business of rounding up undesirables, it's pretty understandable that at a time where the head of government is almost constantly attacking and demagoguing immigrants, that immigrants or people who are related to or friends with immigrants might be a little bit less likely to want to open their door and answer a set of personal questions from a government employee. And then came COVID-19, which obviously makes it kind of tough to go walking around in neighborhoods and apartment buildings to knock on doors and ask people questions. You'd think this would lead to the government needing to extend the process and just take longer to get it right, which of course Democrats have pushed for, as the designated party of competence and responsibility. 
but extending the process would actually make sense. So naturally, the Trump administration has decided to just pull the plug early and not finish counting people. Experts in that same study in Science Magazine anticipate that Republican actions could lead to a severe undercount this year, with non-participation rates possibly reaching double digits. But, and this is the headline, in the last few weeks, the right-wing majority on the Supreme Court said the Trump administration really could just go ahead and stop doing the work, not finish counting for the official document that the government will use to conduct business for the next decade. See, echoing a pattern that I've explored in several previous episodes of this podcast, when it comes to the census, Republicans have figured out that undermining yet another critical institution of American democracy has the potential to benefit them politically, so why not? Think about the kinds of people that would probably be the most difficult for the Census Bureau to find, and thus the ones that census workers would be likely to find later in the count. Probably folks who are homeless, poorer people living clustered together, Native American communities. There are actually, when you think about it, some pretty clear parallels between Republican efforts at voter suppression and these moves to rat undermine, undermine the census. By creating impediments to participation through a combination of fear-mongering and the exploitation or exacerbation of logistical hurdles, a lot of the same people Republican politicians don't seem to like end up getting excluded from both processes. And think about it. Republican leaders have long been against taking very much meaningful action to help Americans who are struggling financially, especially the ones who live in the quote-unquote inner city. Under Trump, they've gone even further in their willingness to leave people that they don't like twisting in the wind. There's solid evidence, for example, that the administration's pathetic response to COVID-19, initially at least, wasn't just driven by pure incompetence, but also by a belief that the people that were being most hurt by the pandemic were the ones who live in blue states, so screw them. If the government can just pretend that fewer people Republican politicians don't care to help exist by effectively erasing them from the document that we'll use to study these things over the next decade, well... No need to lift a finger to improve their lives. Worth mentioning that this will probably be especially harmful at a time when millions of people will likely be experiencing an extra helping of misery and suffering for the next several years as a result of the plague of the century and the resulting economic downturn. So, undercutting government assistance to people Republican politicians don't like is one way that they may feel they benefit from messing up the census. But there's another, more directly dangerous to our democracy way in which an undercount on the census provides yet another opportunity for Republicans to cling on to power despite continuing to lose popular support. Every 10 years after the census, each state is given a certain number of seats in the U.S. House of Representatives based on the new assessment of that state's population. Those seats are then divided into territorial districts, which will be represented in Congress. Are those districts usually drawn at random by some sort of nonpartisan expert commission which studies the population and attempts to fairly apportion representation, you ask? No, of course not. That would make too much sense. With very little exception, districts are in fact drawn and voted on by partisan state legislatures who are at the same time actually redrawing their own districts as well. This has given way to decades, if not centuries, of efforts to draw districts in a way that lead one party to gain the most partisan advantage. This takes place through a process called gerrymandering, named for a politician from at least a century ago named Eldridge Gary, who was very good at this, and who at one point apparently drew a district that looked on the map kind of like a salamander, thus gerrymander. Now, while we may not be using a whole lot of modern data and population mapping science in the way that we conduct the census, 
we sure as hell are using it in the way that congressional districts are drawn, to the point where the vast majority of congressional races aren't really at all competitive. It's become an oft-repeated trope in this context that voters don't choose the politicians, politicians choose their voters. Now, this is bad just on principle, but it's also really exacerbated political polarization. In a number of Republican seats especially, but definitely some blue seats as well, Representatives at this point have a lot more reason to fear losing their seat in a primary challenge from the extreme wing of their party than they do losing it to the other party in a general election. So what happened the last time we went through a redistricting process? It was 2010. Democrats were riding high after their massive electoral victories in 2008, which had built on other pretty substantial electoral victories in 2006. The overly optimistic were, as they did again leading up to the 2016 election and as some are doing yet again this year, predicting the permanent demise of the Republican Party via demographics. But like any good Marvel character or horror movie villain, depending on your perspective, the Republicans came back from the dead in the form of the 2010 midterm elections. The Democrats, driven by their usual political complacency and focused on policy victories like the Affordable Care Act, took their eye off the ball politically and got absolutely swamped in the midterms by the Republicans. Now, this would have been bad in general, given the policy challenges that remained to be tackled in cleaning up after the financial crisis that the Republicans had previously helped bring on through excessive deregulation. But in addition to the Democrats' ambitious policy agenda being effectively ended at the national level by losing the House, 2010 was a census year. The Republicans, who had just flipped approximately one crapload of state legislatures and governorships, would now get to draw the districts that would determine the U.S. House of Representatives and their own state legislatures for the next decade. And draw them they did, using that data and population science I mentioned before. Using a software tool called RedMap, the Republicans engineered a set of congressional districts that would put Democrats in the minority for a decade, regardless of vote totals. In the 2012 election, for example, Democrats won millions more votes for House candidates than the Republicans did, but Republicans still held the majority. In Michigan, for example, Democrats won the state by almost 300,000 votes, but of the state's 14 House seats, the Republicans got nine to the Democrats' five. This was mirrored in a number of newly Republican-controlled states all across the country. Hey, everybody. Before we continue with the episode, I just wanted to take a second to ask you, if you haven't already, to please subscribe to the podcast, and if you're feeling really charitable, to share it with some other people you think might like it. That way you won't miss an episode, and as the show is just getting off the ground, it's really helpful for getting the word out to other potential listeners. Thanks! Okay, now back to the disaster that is American politics. So back in 2010... The Republicans used this red map software to gerrymander themselves an absolutely insurmountable majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, which would hold for the entire rest of Obama's presidency in the first two years of Trump's time in office. So let's fast forward to 2018. I'm guessing it's going to be uncontroversial among the majority of the folks who listen to this podcast when I say that Trump's presidency has had a bunch of horrible implications for the United States in terms of policy stability of our governing system, the way in which the game of politics is played in America. But it's also been sort of politically strange in terms of voting and demographic patterns. It has at once both defied and yet also accelerated some trends. So it's been assumed for a while that increasing diversity would force the Republican Party 
to either moderate on some issues or get completely wiped out. After the 2012 election, for example, uh, the Republican National Committee did this famous autopsy report, which basically said given the inevitable demographic shifts in America, they had to get right on immigration and a couple of other issues. The report specifically called out the fact that they came across as, and I'm quoting here, old white men, unquote. This looks ironic, then, since Trump, four years later, was able to win himself the presidency by further alienating the more diverse groups that the RNC was trying to reach out to in that autopsy report, and instead persuading a substantial chunk of white people in America that they're actually an oppressed minority. Now, to be fair, he was definitely aided in that by legitimate issues that some people have with the more absurd overreaches of the PC movement and the apparent need by some people on the left to engage in ridiculous woke purity contests. Yeah, 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 I know. Very problematic of me to have even brought up that issue, but sorry. Polls show the vast majority of Americans are in fact annoyed by the excesses of the PC movement. Yes, some people will in fact vote on that issue. And no, not everyone who cares about it is in fact an evil, privileged, oppressive, I don't know, Klansman or something. So, yes, we have to take this seriously. But although this cultural resentment strategy worked for Trump in 2016, his presidency has actually acted as sort of an accelerant to the trend toward a more diverse voting population. In 2018, anger at Trump led to massive turnout among the Democratic base, driven by negative partisanship. Trump's existence caused the further left folks who stayed home in 2016 to actually show up this time around. Basically, in 2018, the question wasn't as it was in 2016, hey, super progressives, would you mind taking a quick break from your tantrum over not getting your way in the primary to come vote for Hillary, for whom you have a deep and irrational antipathy, even though she's totally going to win anyway? In 2018, the question was, all right, you've seen two years of the Republicans in charge. Ready to come out and vote against that? Turns out the latter argument was an easier sell. Shocker. Possibly more importantly, Trump has completely lost the suburbs on which the 2010 gerrymander was heavily based. Of all the terrible divides that Trump has created or exacerbated in America, one that's often overlooked is the very real split between folks that live in urban versus rural areas. Trump's behavior has pushed the suburbs, which had already been diversifying anyway, pretty solidly toward the urban column. Quick side note, I've griped in the past on this podcast, mostly good natured I hope, about the fact that the squad, as they're called, a group of aggressively to the left representatives who all won in super easy districts in 2018, mostly just by attacking fellow Democrats rather than by beating Republicans, got a disproportionate amount of coverage in the 2018 midterms and have continued to. Now, this is because of a combination of things. Partially their impressive command of social media, the aptitude of Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in particular in congressional hearings, the barrier-breaking nature of some of their candidacies, and the right-wing media's obsession with them. But also the tendency of some in the group to say inflammatory, dumb things in public. I'm referring especially to Representative Ilhan Omar basically calling Obama a murderer and her barely concealed anti-Semitism, which is definitely a conversation for another day, but something we can't just ignore and accept unless we want to go the way of the British Labour Party. But, as much as Fox News tries to convince its viewers that the entire Democratic caucus is these four freshman representatives, AOC plus three. In strategizing for the 2018 election in the context of these newly competitive suburban areas, the Democratic Party leadership as a whole was very smart about supporting candidates that actually fit their districts. The real heroes of the 2018 midterms, the reason Democrats took back the House, 
where the raft of way more qualified, relatively moderate Democrats, many of whom had military intelligence or diplomatic experience, and won tough seats in swing districts by, you know, beating Republicans. Thus, through a combination of luck and excellent strategy, the Democrats managed to beat overwhelming odds to overcome the Republican gerrymander of 2010 and get back the House in 2018. Now, in 2020, Democrats appear to be on track to have the same kind of election as Republicans did in 2010. So, naturally, the Republicans are attempting to preemptively sabotage the redistricting process by messing with the census. So, just to recap... An inaccurate, undercounted census probably makes it politically easier for Republican politicians to not help people that they don't care about, and is yet another procedural dirty trick they can use to try to hold on to power despite declining popular support. And in the last couple of weeks, the right-wing majority on the Supreme Court has given the Trump administration the green light to just pull the plug and stop the count early, thus giving Republicans the inaccurate numbers they appear to be hoping for. That all being the case... What should Democrats and those who care about America's democratic institutions do about it? Well, in terms of actual policy remedies for the problem of a bad census, I don't know. As I said earlier, this episode is not intended to be a deep dive into census policy. But in terms of what the political response should be to the Republicans rigging the census, the answer is a bit more obvious. Revenge in the form of a merciless redistricting strategy. Now, realizing how much of a problem gerrymandering is for American democracy, a number of states, over the objection of Republicans, of course, who never miss a chance to be on the wrong side of history, have taken steps to reform the redistricting process. I believe California changed their law in time for the last redistricting, and more recently the voters of Michigan, including Maine, in 2018 approved a resolution to replace the partisan process with an independent commission. On the national level, Former Attorney General Eric Holder has created an organization called the National Democratic Redistricting Committee to push for a fairer redistricting process and fight gerrymandering. President Obama has gotten involved as well. I assume he has strong feelings on the issue after spending three quarters of his presidency dealing with a massively gerrymandered Congress. In the medium to long term, this is a great thing for our democracy. The way districts are drawn is, in fact, arbitrary and ridiculous and has made our politics way less accountable and way more crazy and polarized. But in the short term, at least for this cycle, I think Democrats' goal should be a bit less noble. After the way Republicans treated the redistricting process the last time around, I want them to get a taste of their own medicine. Also, if they got to have most of a decade of a system that was massively rigged to benefit them, aren't Democrats entitled to the same? Additionally, I think the blue team should be absolutely ruthless in redistricting this year for more reasons than just my white-hot rage over how the Republicans have gamed our democracy. A rage I admit that I'm feeling especially acutely recording the day after they spat on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's grave by ramming a right-wing extremist onto the Supreme Court five minutes before an election. <sighs> Playing hardball could actually be helpful in the long run and make redistricting reform more likely. Here's why. American history has often shown that structural problems don't tend to get fixed when one party is directly benefiting from that problem. A little over a century ago, the progressive movement worked to root out and fix corruption and non-meritocracy in the government that was, at the time, a bipartisan problem. That movement included leaders from both parties, and I would hazard a guess that if only one party at the time had a corruption problem, the problem would have been actually a whole lot more difficult to solve. This phenomenon is on pretty clear display with a number of the structural problems we see in American democracy today. For example, 
The Republicans have zero incentive to get big money out of politics when they have tended to have vastly more backing from rich people and corporations. Sure, liberal rich people exist, but they've usually not chipped in in the way that, say, the Koch brothers and Sheldon Adelson have, because they tend to believe that it's not cool to buy elections. They're right, of course, but as long as Republicans are willing and able to buy elections and the Democrats are unwilling to do the same, what possible incentive do the Republicans have to cooperate on a fix? That's why, as inspirational as it feels when one of our candidates proudly promises to never take money from PACs, I'm actually really glad to see Michael Bloomberg and some other liberal gajillionaires starting to throw their wallets around this cycle. Lindsey Graham made a joke a couple weeks ago in a hearing about starting to reconsider Citizens United now that he's facing a super well-funded opponent. I know he was kidding, and it was intended as a joke, but I think this is actually kind of illustrative of the point. There's a lot more incentive to reform the system when it starts negatively impacting your side, too. Look at the judiciary. A couple decades back, some right-wing crank named Leonard Leo founded the Federalist Society, which is basically now the Republicans' own right-wing alternative to the nonpartisan American Bar Association. And Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate have been absolutely ruthless about getting Federalist Society operatives onto the federal bench, using a Senate majority representing a minority of the country to stack the judiciary with extreme right, often unqualified appointments of a president who was himself elected with a minority of the vote. Now, two-thirds of the Supreme Court, six of the nine justices, were appointed by presidents who became president even though more Americans initially voted for their opponent. If the Democrats don't now make the Republicans pay a devastating price for what they've done, taking advantage of a broken judicial system, culminating with sticking Amy Covid Barrett on the bench, what possible incentive do the Republicans have to change that system? The same logic applies to the redistricting process after this census, which they've now also broken. That's all to say, this cycle, Democrats should not take the high road. At least not right away. Republicans don't get to just move past all this in the same way that they'll doubtless someday before too long try to go, Donald who? if Trump loses the election. Eric Holder is doing a great and a really noble thing over the long term with this effort to reform the redistricting process and combat gerrymandering. But he also, at one point, when talking about Republicans using temporary political power to try to rig the system, revised Michelle Obama's famous when they go low, we go high statement, suggesting instead, when they go low, we kick them. That is exactly right right now. In this redistricting process, the Democrats need to be ruthless. The Democrats need to get revenge. Firstly, they're entitled to it. Secondly, Maybe after two or three cycles of unbreakable Democratic control of the U.S. House of Representatives, Republicans will start to understand the benefit of having voters pick the politicians again instead of the other way around and start to come around to the idea of reforming the system. Even before what the Republicans have now done to, in all likelihood, erase huge numbers of Americans in the census, I would have probably already advocated a no-holds-barred, bare-knuckled approach to redistricting this time around just to exact a consequence for the shameful way in which the Republicans did it in 2010, and in response to the way they've been approaching politics in the past few years. I mean, most of the Republicans, at least the ones in leadership, have made it clear. The only language they speak is brute political force. But after they rig the census, it goes beyond just making them pay a price. It's actually a moral imperative that Democrats compensate for what has been done in the census to not count the people that most need to be seen by and represented in their government. American democracy, 
shouldn't be like this. We should be better. I desperately hope that the Trump presidency leads a lot of people to wake up, realize we need to make some changes, clean some things up, not play such vicious hardball with each other. I personally would love to one day not feel comfortable so freely throwing around words like revenge in the context of democratic politics. The long-term stability of a democracy kind of depends on the presence of at least some mutual respect, commitment to the democratic system and democratic institutions, and a willingness to, to sometimes lose. But in a two-party system, as long as one party is choosing to employ brute political force, the other simply cannot and should not unilaterally disarm. It won't work, and there's just too much at stake. That's it for this episode of OK Talks. If you're listening to this before the election and haven't yet done so, please make a plan to vote and beg, bribe, pester, cajole, shame, whatever works, everyone you know into doing the same. If you're listening after the election, well, I hope you're living in a better world than we all are right now, and if not, well, my condolences. If you're enjoying the show so far and don't want to miss an episode, please hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you really want to do me a solid, you can like or review the podcast on one of those platforms, or share it with other folks who might want to listen to it. As always, I want to thank my friend Nate Wright for designing the podcast artwork. Until the next episode, thanks for listening.